Section 4 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 3, 1542-1547. In the month of December, 1542, shortly after the rout of Solway, in which the English made prisoners the flower of the Scottish nobility, the same messenger brought to Henry VIII, the tidings that the grief and shame of this defeat had broken the heart of king james v and that his queen had brought into the world a daughter who had received the name of mary and was now queen of scotland without stopping to deplore the melancholy fate of a nephew whom he had himself brought to destruction henry instantly formed the project of uniting the whole island under one crown by the marriage of this infant sovereign with the prince his son all the Scottish prisoners of rank then in London were immediately offered the liberty of returning to their own country on the condition, to which they acceded with apparent alacrity, of promoting this union with all their interest, and so confident was the English monarch in the success of his measures, that previously to their departure several of them were carried to the palace of Enfield, where young Edward then resided, that they might tender homage to the future husband of their queen. The regency of Scotland at this critical juncture was claimed by the Earl of Arran, who was generally regarded as next heir to the crown, though his legitimacy had been disputed, and to this nobleman, but whether for himself or his son seems doubtful, Henry, as a further means of securing the important object which he had at heart, offered the hand of his daughter Elizabeth. So early were the concerns and interests blended of two princesses whose celebrated rivalry was destined to endure until the life of one of them had become its sacrifice. So remarkably, too, in this first transaction was contrasted the high preeminence from which the Scottish princess was destined to hurl herself by her own misconduct, with the abasement and comparative insignificance out of which her genius and her good fortune were to be employed in elevating the future sovereign of England. Born in the purple of her hereditary kingdom, the monarchs of France and England made it an object of eager contention which of them should succeed in encircling with a second diadem the baby brows of Mary while the hand of Elizabeth was tossed as a trivial boon to a Scottish earl of equivocal birth, despicable abilities, and feeble character. So little, too, was even this person flattered by the honour, or aware of the advantages of such a connection, that he soon after renounced it by quitting the English for the French party. Elizabeth, in consequence, remained unbetrothed, and her father soon afterwards secured to himself a more strenuous ally in the Earl of Lennox, also of the blood royal of scotland by bestowing upon this nobleman the hand not of his daughter but of his niece the lady margaret douglas undeterred by his late severe disappointment henry was bent on entering once more into the marriage state and his choice now fell on catherine parr sprung from a knightly family possessed of large estates in westmoreland and widow of lord latimer a member of the great house of neville a portrait of this lady still in existence exhibits with fine and regular features a character of intelligence and arch simplicity extremely captivating she was indeed a woman of uncommon talent and address and her mental accomplishments besides the honour which they reflect on herself inspire us with respect for the enlightened liberality of an age in which such acquirements could be placed within the ambition and attainment of a private gentlewoman born in a remote county remarkable even in much later times for a primitive simplicity of manners and domestic habits catherine was both learned herself and after her elevation a zealous patroness of learning and of protestantism to which she was become a convert nicholas uddle master of eton was employed by her to translate erasmus's paraphrase of the four gospels and there is extant a latin letter of hers to the princess mary whose conversion from popery she seems to have had much at heart 
in which she entreats her to permit this work to appear under her auspices. She also printed some prayers and meditations, and there was found among her papers, after her death, a piece entitled, quote, The Lamentations of a Sinner Bewailing Her Blind Life, end quote, in which she deplores the years that she had passed in popish observances, and which was afterwards published by Secretary Cecil. It is a striking proof of the address of this queen that she conciliated the affection of all the three children of the king, letters from each of whom have been preserved, addressed to her after the death of their father. Elizabeth in particular maintained with her a very intimate and frequent intercourse, which ended, however, in a manner reflecting little credit on either party, as will be more fully explained in its proper place. The adroitness with which Catherine extricated herself from the snare in which her own religious zeal, the moroseness of the king, and the enmity of Gardiner had conspired to entangle her, has often been celebrated. May it not be conjectured that such an example, given by one whom she entertained a high opinion, might exert no inconsiderable influence on the opening mind of Elizabeth, whose conduct in the many similar dilemmas to which it was her lot to be reduced, partook so much of the same character of politic and cautious equivocation? Henry discovered by experiment that it would prove a much more difficult matter than he had apprehended, to accomplish, either by force or persuasion, the marriage of young Edward with the Queen of Scots, and learning that it was principally to the intrigues of Francis I, against whom he had other causes also of complaint, that he was likely to owe the disappointment of this favourite scheme, he determined on revenge. With this design he turned his eyes on the Emperor, and finding Charles perfectly well disposed to forget all ancient animosities in sympathy with his newly conceived indignation against the French king, he entered with him into a strict alliance. War was soon declared against France by the new confederates, and after a campaign in which little was effected, it was agreed that Charles and Henry, uniting their efforts, should assail that kingdom with a force which it was judged incapable of resisting, and without stopping at inferior objects, march straight to Paris. Accordingly, in July 1544, preceded by a fine army, and attended by the flower of his nobility splendidly equipped, Henry took his departure for Calais in a ship, the sails of which were made of cloth of gold. He arrived in safety, and enjoyed the satisfaction of dazzling with his magnificence the Count de Buren, whom the Emperor sent with a body of horse to meet him, quarrelled soon after with that potentate, who found it his interest to make a separate peace, took the towns of Montreuil and Boulogne, neither of them of any value to him, and returned. So foolish and expensive a sally of passion, however characteristic of the disposition of this monarch, would not merit commemoration in this place, but for the important influence which is unexpectedly exerted on the fortune and expectations of Elizabeth through the following train of circumstances. The emperor, whose long enmity with Henry had taken its rise from what he justly regarded as the injuries of Catherine of Aragon, his aunt, in whose person the whole royal family of Spain had been insulted, had required of him as a preliminary to their treaty a formal acknowledgment of the legitimacy of his daughter Mary. This Henry could not, with any regard to consistency, grant. But desirous to accede as far as he conveniently could to the wishes of his new ally, he consented to stipulate that without any explanation on this point his eldest daughter should by act of Parliament be reinstated in the order of succession. At the same time, glad to relent in behalf of his favourite child, and unwilling, perhaps, to give the Catholic party the triumph of asserting that he had virtually declared his first marriage more lawful than his second, he caused a similar privilege to be extended to Elizabeth, who was thus happily restored to her original station and prospects, before she had attained sufficient maturity of age to suffer by the cruel and mortifying degradation to which she had been for several years subjected. Henceforth, though the act which declared null the marriage of the king with Anne Boleyn remained for ever unrepealed, 
her daughter appears to have been universally recognized on the footing of a princess of england and so completely were the old disputes concerning the divorce of catherine consigned to oblivion that in fifteen forty six when france spain and england had concluded a treaty of peace proposals passed between the courts of london and madrid for the marriage of elizabeth with philip prince of spain that very philip afterwards her brother-in-law and in adversity her friend and protector then a second time her suitor and afterwards again to the end of his days the most formidable and implacable of her enemies on which side or on what assigned objections this treaty of marriage was relinquished we do not learn but as the demonstrations of friendship between charles and henry after their french campaign were full of insincerity it may perhaps be doubted whether either party was ever bent in earnest on the completion of this extraordinary union the popish and protestant factions which now divided the english court had for several years acknowledged as their respective leaders the duke of norfolk and the earl of hertford to the latter of these the painful impression left on henry's mind by the excesses of catherine howard the religious sentiments embraced by the present queen the king's increasing jealousy of the ancient nobility of the country and above all the visible decline of his health which brought into immediate prospect the accession of young edward under the tutelage of his uncle had now conspired to give a decided preponderancy the aged duke sagacious politic and deeply versed in all the secrets and the arts of courts saw in a coalition with the seymours the only expedient for averting the ruin of his house and he proposed to bestow his daughter the duchess of richmond in marriage on sir thomas seymour while he exerted all his authority with his son to prevail upon him to address one of the daughters of the earl of hertford but surrey's scorn of the new nobility of the house of seymour and his animosity against the person of its chief was not to be overcome by any plea of expedience or threatening of danger he could not forget that it was at the instance of the earl of hertford that he with some other nobles and gentlemen had suffered the disgrace of imprisonment for eating flesh in lent that when a trifling defeat which he had sustained near boulogne had caused him to be removed from the government of that town it was the earl of hertford who ultimately profited by his misfortune in succeeding to the command of the army other grounds of offence the haughty surrey had also conceived against him and choosing rather to fall than cling for support to an enemy at once despised and hated he braved the utmost displeasure of his father by an absolute refusal to lend himself to such a scheme of alliance of this circumstance his enemies availed themselves to instil into the mind of the king a suspicion that the earl of surrey aspired to the hand of the princess mary they also commented with industrious malice on his bearing the arms of edward the confessor to which he was clearly entitled in right of his mother a daughter of the duke of buckingham but which his more cautious father had ceased to quarter after the attainder of that unfortunate nobleman the sick mind of henry received with eagerness all these suggestions and the ruin of the earl was determined an indictment of high treason was preferred against him his proposal of disproving the charge according to a mode then legal by fighting his principal accuser in his shirt was overruled his spirited strong and eloquent defence was disregarded a jury devoted to the crown brought in a verdict of guilty and in january fifteen forty seven at the early age of seven-and-twenty he underwent the fatal sentence of the law no one during the whole sanguinary tyranny of henry the eighth fell more guiltless or more generally deplored by all whom personal animosity or the spirit of party had not hardened against sentiments of compassion or blinded to the perception of merit but much of surrey has survived the cruelty of his fate his beautiful songs and sonnets which served as a model to the most popular poets of the age of elizabeth still excite the admiration of every student attached to the early literature of our country 
amongst other frivolous charges brought against him on his trial it was mentioned that he kept an italian jester thought to be a spy and that he loved to converse with foreigners and conform his behaviour to them for his personal safety therefore it was perhaps unfortunate that a portion of his youth had been passed in a visit to italy then the focus of literature and font of inspiration but for his surviving fame and for the progress of english poetry the circumstance was eminently propitious since it is from the return of this noble traveller that we are to date not only the introduction into our language of the petrarchan sonnet and with it of a tenderness and refinement of sentiment unknown to the barbarism of our preceding versifiers but what is much more that of heroic blank verse a noble measure of which the earliest example exists in surrey's spirited and faithful version of one book of the aenid the exalted rank the splendid talents the lofty spirit of this lamented nobleman seemed to destine him to a station second to none among the public characters of his time and if instead of being cut off by the hand of violence in the morning of life he had been permitted to attain a length of days at all approaching the fourscore years of his father it is probable that the votary of letters would have been lost to us in the statesman or the soldier queen mary who sought by her favour and confidence to revive the almost extinguished energies of his father and called forth into premature distinction the aspiring boyhood of his son would have entrusted to his vigorous years the highest offices and most weighty affairs of state perhaps even the suspicions of her father might have been verified by the event and her own royal hand might itself have become the reward of his virtues and attachment elizabeth whose maternal ancestry closely connected her with the house of howard might have sought and found in her kinsman the earl of surrey a counsellor and friend deserving of all her confidence and esteem and it is possible that he with safety and effect might have placed himself as a mediator between the queen and that formidable catholic party of which his misguided son fatally for himself aspired to be regarded as the leader and was in fact only the instrument but the career of ambition ere he had well entered it was closed upon him for ever and it is as an accomplished knight a polished lover and above all as a poet that the name of surrey now lives in the annals of his country of the five children who survived to feel the want of his paternal guidance one daughter married to the earl of westmoreland was honourably distinguished by talents erudition and the patronage of letters but of the two sons the elder was that unfortunate duke of norfolk who paid on the scaffold the forfeit of an inconsiderate and guilty enterprise and the younger created earl of northampton by james i lived to disgrace his birth and fine talents by every kind of baseness and died just in time to escape punishment as the accomplice in overbury's murder the duke of norfolk had been declared guilty of high treason on grounds equally frivolous with his son but the opportune death of henry the eighth on the day that his cruel and unmerited sentence was to have been carried into execution saved his life when his humble submissions and pathetic supplications for mercy had failed to touch the callous heart of the expiring despot the jealousies however religious and political of the council of regency on which the administration devolved prompted them to refuse liberty to the illustrious prisoner after their weakness or their clemency had granted him his life during the whole reign of edward the sixth the duke was detained under close custody in the tower his estates were confiscated his blood attainted and for this period the great name of howard disappears from the page of english history End of section four.